Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the Sales Leaders Playbook. Today, we welcome Andy Byron. Having previously been CRO at Cyber Reason and Fuse, Andy has now become president at one of the largest growing cloud security automation companies in the world, Laceworks. In this episode, we discover how Andy was able to leave the world of pro baseball to go on to become one of the most prolific sales leaders. This is his playbook. We investigate one of the greatest success stories in the history of software sales. 33 CXOs learnt the playbook from one man, John McMahon, a legacy which stretches back to the late 90s at a company called PTC. They were later reunited at Blade Logic, which was acquired by BMC. What happened next was truly remarkable. These CXOs went on to become the most prolific sales leaders in the software industry. They've raised over 22 billion in VC funding. They contribute to 4% of software turnover globally, 26 unicorns, eight decacorns, and the companies they drive have a combined valuation of 230 billion. At Hunters and Unicorn, we're revealing their playbook. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host, Ollie Kune. Hey, everyone. And today we welcome Andy Byron. Andy, welcome to the show. Hey, Simon. Hey, Ollie. Great to be here. Welcome to the show. Great to have you on the show, Andy. Thank you, Ollie. So in the way of an introduction, Andy, you have been multiple CRO at companies such as Fuse and Cyber Reason, and you're currently president at Lacework. Tell us a little bit about Lacework in your role. So Lacework was founded five years ago, and our mission is to be the global standard in cloud security. And we provide a security platform that allows our customers visibility and control over all their activities across their cloud environments. And as you know, uh, as more and more companies are either born in the cloud or move more applications into the cloud, the security of these environments becomes ever more critical. Um, because of the nature of what we do and the criticality of what we do, uh, we've experienced some great growth over the last three years. Uh, each year, we've grown over 300% year over year. Um, we don't see that slowing down. We now have over 200 customers around the world. And uh, my responsibility as the president is to make sure that we have an effective sales team, um, an effective marketing team, and uh, an effective customer success team that allows us to have happy customers 24 by seven. So that's my role within, within Lacework. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a great, great trajectory. Uh, Series C. So you've had 74 million in funding is my understanding. And most of that has been led all three rounds have actually been led by Mike Spicer at Sutter Hill. Is he going to pull another, is he going to pull another one out the, uh, out the bag? We think so. So, you know, as, <laughs> as, uh, as you can read, uh, uh, you know, it's well documented now on Mike's success and, 
you know, uh, Sutter Hill Ventures and Mike and myself and our CEO and our executive team and the incredible team that we're building here at Lacework really believes that we can be the next big, big win coming out of Sutter Hill Ventures. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting because you are rolling out quite a, an exceptional playbook at Lacework and you can already see um, you can really see that from, from what we're hearing in the market how amazing that is and we are going to talk a lot more about what it is that you're doing at Lacework but I, I do want to go right to the beginning of your journey um, and it's interesting because you were you always well you weren't always going to go into sales because you started playing pro baseballs that is is that right so tell us a little bit about you know your your, your kind of baseball career and uh, how you ended up in sales yeah absolutely guys so uh, I grew up uh, in in the uh, suburbs of Boston and growing up uh, with uh, two brothers we were super competitive and I really you know gravitated towards sports and in particular uh, baseball. I was a huge Boston Red Sox fan uh, here in the Boston area. And um, it was something over time uh, that allowed me to do things uh, like, you know, go to go to the college I wanted to meet a bunch of great uh, uh, friends over the course of my life. Uh, and really, it's a goal I had when I was probably, you know, six or seven years old, as long as I could remember that I wanted an opportunity to potentially play my, you know, passion on TV, which is professional baseball. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, to have the shot at doing it. However, I quickly realized, uh, you know, that my talent was not going to take me to the TV. So, um, so it's something that, uh, that I really uh, cherish. It's something that uh, being able to play professional baseball, I, I kind of, you know, try to call upon every day and some of the things that I do in my, in my current job. Do you still play? So, so tell us about, oh, sorry. <laughs> I was about to say, do you still play at all? Semi or? Oh, you, five no, I, I, you don't want me throwing anything right now. That, <laughs> no, no I, I have not played baseball for a long time. So I, I was just going to say, just, just tell us a little bit about that, that mindset of having to, realize within yourself and say this isn't going to work and then how you then found yourself in the world of sales so um i guess you know ollie and simon when when i went to university uh, here in the states um the only thing that i really thought i wanted to do was play sports play baseball and um after playing a couple of years in the minor leagues uh, throughout the United States, you quickly realize that that's not, you know, the, the difference between that and then being able to make it to the major leagues and play on TV and fulfill your life or dream. You know, there's a lot of variables uh, that are, that impact whether or not you're going to do that or not. And I quickly came to the realization that that's, that that was probably not in my future I also came to the realization that um, I was lucky enough to have a four-year college degree, and I, I wanted to go put that to good use. And um, I decided that, you know, after a couple of years to, to stop kind of pursuing a dream that was probably never going to uh, come to fruition. And I wanted to go and apply 
all the competitiveness that I had and, and really enjoyed in playing sports to something outside of sports. And, you know, you quickly realize when you don't have a doctor's degree or you're not an accountant or you're not a lawyer or you don't have a specialty degree that your choices are somewhat limiting unless you want to go back to school, which, you know, I, I did not want to. So um, I started to say, well, well, maybe I can go and and apply this towards uh, something that you're measured on every quarter and every day and every week, which is sales. And it's something that I got into right after playing sports. And uh, it's something that I've done for the past 20 years and I've thoroughly enjoyed. Do you think that foundation in sport really gave you a lot of the kind of attributes that have enabled you to, to, to have the success that you've had? I think so, Simon. When I reflect back on some of the things that uh, have enabled me to, to have some of the success of been able to enjoy in my career and in my life, I think sports is at the heart of it. And um, I would absolutely say yes to that. Yeah. So you found yourself um, having well, stopped playing baseball. Um, was Nortel your first, your first role in, in sales? It was. It was actually with the company called Bay Networks. Okay. And Bay Networks was acquired by Nortel. And um, I remember coming home from uh, Tennessee, uh, which is the last place I played, uh, I played baseball. And um, I didn't know what to do. And I knew that I needed to be able to apply my competitiveness to something in my career. And I also knew I needed money. That was really important to me because I was broke. And um, I ended up applying to a company called Bay Networks. I couldn't spell technology at the time personally. And uh, the, the, the hiring manager had me in for an interview and liked the fact that I played sports. That's one of the reasons actually that, that I got the interview. <laughs> and um, they offered me a job right there on the spot and they gave me three choices to, to, to move to. But I, this was on a Thursday, and I had to be in one of these three choices on Tuesday. It was either California, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or Washington, D.C. And um, the reason I chose Washington, where I ended up going to work for Bay Networks, was because it's the only place I thought my car could get me <laughs> without breaking Nice here. So I moved down to Washington, D.C. And um, I joined. That's when I started my career in sales at Bay Networks. Uh, it was a great opportunity. They had a great training program, which is another big reason why I went there, not just my car. I knew that I had to uh, go into a company that would spend time training and enabling me and providing me the knowledge I needed in order to be the best professional I could be at sales. Um, so I did that for several years and then Bay Networks was acquired by Nortel. And uh, I spent a little bit of time at Nortel, but that's really, I'd say the beginning of my, of my sales career. Would you say you've got it straight away, Andy? Uh, no, I would say no. I, I think that, you know, Ollie, um, it, 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 it's something that when you, when you think of sales, it, you think of something that you go out, you shake some hands, uh, you smile, you have a good conversation, then you ask for an order, and then money falls out of the tree. And I found out really quickly 
that that was not the case, right? I, I found out really quickly that there are so many subtleties to being successful at sales. Uh, and those, those subtleties, it took me a long time to learn because I was used to somewhat instant success. Anytime I picked up a ball or a bat or kicked a ball, I was for a fairly good athlete and that came easy to me. And what I found out early in my career was that sales was going to be a long marathon and a long journey. And over that time, you have to have an open mind to learn as much as you can in order to be really good at, at this craft. Mm. When you look at the amazing career that you've had, and I don't want to reflect too much because we're right at the beginning of your journey, but I, I do want to reflect at this moment in time. Do you think to yourself, I could reach the top? Or, or are you literally just fighting for the next paycheck? Well, I think, Simon, at the time I was fighting for the next paycheck because I needed to get my car fixed. And then, uh, <clears throat> well, once that happened, you know, look, I'm a, I'm a very goal-oriented person. And when I decide I'm going to do something, especially at that point in my life where I was making a transition from athletics into the next stage in my life, which is my career, uh, I definitely had certain goals and anytime I, I do something, I, I want to aim for the top and I want to, I want to have a plan and I want to ex execute every day against that plan. And so I did have certain goals at the time, um, early on in my career, it wasn't necessarily about being a president or a CRO or a CEO. It was more about, Hey, I want to be the best salesperson in my office. And then from there, I want to be the best, you know, um, in my district. So, but I did have certain goals that I, that I'd want to, that I aspired towards. Um, they, they just took on a little bit of a different um, form over the course of my career and over the course of my life. And did you find that that kind of area of focus has changed in terms of, you know, those targets that you're setting yourself? Do, do you think that that focus has really evolved over time yeah absolutely it has um i think early on in in my career at least uh it was it was about uh monetary and making money uh that was really important and then it became about well how can i um show that i can lead people and at this point in my career it's about how can i create a legacy where when i look back you know, a lot of people can say, hey, Byron was a fair uh, leader, maybe not the easiest person to work for, but he was fair and uh, he enabled me to do things that I never thought I could do in my career. That's really important to me now. It's not about it's not about a title anymore. It's not about uh, necessarily monetary things. It's more about at this point in my career, what what can my legacy be like when I decide not to do this anymore? Yeah. You speak a lot about open mindset versus closed mindset. And I think this is probably a good time to, to kind of bring that in. So what was your mindset initially? And do, do you think you've always had a, an open mindset? So no, I can tell you this is, uh, it's something actually, Simon, that it's, it took me a while to, um, to really get comfortable with myself around, which is, I think um, I always came from the position of, uh, I'm going to come to a conclusion first and then try to, you know, impart my will on people to come to my, to come to the conclusion I came to. Right. And that is, and that is not an open mindset. I think, 
Um, as of uh, uh, learned through a lot of positive experiences and a lot of learning experiences, hard experiences in my career, um, I've, I've evolved into somebody that I think has a much more open mindset than I did, you know, uh, in, in, in earlier in my career, for sure. And somebody who's much more purposeful uh, with how they approach their job and the intentions uh, of, of how they approach their job and what uh, around other people and what the impact is going to be on other people. And that is absolutely not something that uh, I can say I, I had earlier in my career. Yeah. So I suppose just to kind of just dig, dig a little bit deeper in there, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are really interested in, in, in what it really takes to kind of get the best out of yourself. So, so can you just tell us maybe some of the mechanisms that perhaps you've implemented to help give you that focus? Is that setting very strict goals or, you know, the way that you manage your, your diary or just tell us a little bit about some of the things that are important to help you with that? I think, Simon, the biggest thing for me um, that's had the biggest impact, at least on my career, uh, even recently, is having a purpose behind what, what you want the outcome to be and making sure that that purpose is well understood by everybody uh, that works with you and around you um, and that the, that the purpose is only with the good intentions for the company and for the individuals. And that's something that takes an awful lot of planning, right? So um, part of how I prepare for being successful is every day planning for what, what, what the purpose of this conversation is gonna be. What, uh, what do I want the outcomes to be on that? How do I make sure that everybody understands the outcome? So we're all on the same team driving towards the same intention and the same outcome. Uh, whether that's a one-on-one -on -one conversation, whether that's a large group conversation, um, whether that's a company meeting, uh, or even whether that's a one-off conversation, I really take the time to take a second to make sure that um, there's a purpose behind every conversation that I have throughout the day. Now that takes a lot of preparation and planning, and that does take a lot of time management as well. Um, but I make sure I set aside the time uh, to, to be purposeful behind each interaction I have throughout the day. Uh, and that might mean too, Simon, that maybe I don't have 15 meetings in a day that I rush through. Maybe I only have five, but those five meetings are high impact purposeful meetings that I get to plan for and I get to make sure that the desired outcomes are met. Do you set time aside for that? You know, at the end of the day, the beginning of the day, the end of the week or? I do. And it's something that, especially coming into lace work, I've made a, a much more conscious effort at doing. Um, I, I, I'm an early riser, right? So I'm, I'm up, you know, before the sun comes up usually. And uh, during those hours is when I look at my diary, my mind's fresh. And I, uh, I look through what each meeting is for the day. And I, I, I write out and right here as an example, handwritten notes on here's what I want this meeting to be like. This is what I think the, the purpose should be. And whoever I'm talking to, I also think through my preparation before the day starts, 
what, what is the outcome that looks good for them as well? Right. So it's not just about me. It's about the team and it's about the right outcome for the company and the right outcome for, for the team. Yeah. Very great. Great insight there. So, so, um, if you, if you kind of just take us through, so from, from Nortel, you then made your way through to Navisite um, and then Very Center, uh, where you were Eastern Regional Manager, April 2004 to September 2006. Um, and then you made your way through to Blade Logic. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, look, I. Um... I would say that uh, Vericenter was acquired by, so, so Navisite and, and Vericenter were in the sp- same space. It was very early. They called them at the time application service providers. It's, you know, I'd say the version one of, of, of cloud computing. And um, um, I was in, in sales at both of those companies. Um, Vericenter uh, was my first leadership role. I had a great experience there. I worked with a bunch of great people at that company. It's, uh, there's a pretty common theme uh, in every company that I've worked for that's been you know, very successful. The, and that theme has been that there's been alignment from the executive team in, down to the field. And that, I, get to, I got to see that firsthand at Vericenter where I worked for just an awesome CEO, uh, one of my early mentors, uh, his name is Mike Sullivan, uh, down in Houston, Texas. Mike had a pretty big impact in my career at the time uh, at Vericenter. He's the VP of sales. Um, and Vericenter was acquired by SunGuard. And I knew I wanted to get out of that, that space and more into direct software manufacturing sales uh, versus you know, reselling hosted or co-located applications. And uh, I knew a, a recruiter, um, uh, Price Williams, and Brig Tyson. It's a recruiting firm in Washington D.C. And I called, I called up those two individuals, and I said, um, "Who's the best person I can work for and learn from?" And immediately, one name came out: John McMahon. Right? And they said, "This there's this fellow. His name's John McMahon. Uh, great guy." Uh, knows how to really run an incredible uh, sales organization. Has built incredible sales teams. And uh, I asked uh, Brig in, in Price at the time, "How do I go meet John? I, I need to go to, to go meet this guy." And uh, and that's kind of h- how I ended up getting getting hired at Blade Logic. And you know, been really had an incredible mentor and incredible friend since since Blade Logic and John. So, Andy, why at that particular stage did you choose a person rather than a technology or a company to go and work with? Because, Ollie, I, I, because at the time, look, we mentioned before that you, know, you, you asked me before, did, do you have a plan? And at that time in my, in my career and in, in my life, I did have a plan, right? I, I wanted to go work for a company where I could obtain more knowledge than what I've had before. In my opinion, um, I think knowledge is much more important than working for the right product or the right, you know, the right company. Those are really important too. I'm not discounting that, but 
being able to early on in your career obtain knowledge, that's more powerful, at least in my opinion, that, that was more powerful for me than being able to work for a company where a comp plan was the best in the world. Uh, I, 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 I always knew that with knowledge, um, those things would come. And I wanted to gain a lot of knowledge at that point in my career because, because I had certain aspirations that I was moving towards. And I wanted to be associated and work for a company that in a person that would provide me that knowledge to help me achieve those goals. <clears throat> so, so did you interview directly with John when you, when you I went did. to Skype? I did. I got, he gave, he gave me a stare down. Talk us through that. We've, we've heard so many different stories of John mm -hmm. and other members of the Blade Logic team and their interview techniques. So uh, I met John at a breakfast place uh, up here in the Boston area. And um, I remember uh, just having a conversation with them. And, you know, I, I thought he asked me really tough questions. Uh, but the questions were great questions. And I came away from that interview thinking, wow, that's the first time anybody's ever really interviewed me. It's the first time I've had to sit in a seat where somebody asked me questions that I had to think about myself, right? Versus just being able to rattle off answers and then go to the next one and go to the next one. And uh, I walked out of that, out of that hour meeting thinking, man, that's a, that's a person I could see myself working for based on the questions that he asked me, right? These, this was not a softball interview, right? As you've probably heard from a lot of my friends and coworkers from Blade Logic, he's, John's a very tough uh, person uh, in an interview, but fair and asked just incredible questions. Knowing what you know about the playbook and why, why do you think, what do you think he was doing by asking you those tough questions? That, sorry, Simon, can you repeat? You, you what what do you think he was trying to do by asking you those tough questions? Where, where, what, was he, what was his purpose for asking those questions, those tough questions? Well, I think first he wants to see how you react, right? So look, it, you know, um, when, when you ask somebody a tough question in an interview, it can only come from one of two places. And, and, and people with a high emotional IQ understand this, right? Place number one is, is it coming from a bad place where the person just wants to tear you down and, and, and you know, make themselves feel important and you feel, you know, uh, small in that, in that moment. Or place number two is, is somebody coming from a position of, hey, I want to make sure I'm only hiring the best here. And part of hiring the best is, you know, they, how do they react when they're a little uncomfortable? Because that's the position you're going to get put in, in, in a sales job. And there's no question in my mind. It was, Hey, can we, can we make this guy feel a little, or can I make this guy feel a little bit uncomfortable to see what his reaction is? Um, so I think that that's really uh, where the, you know, how, how those questions were being asked. Let me, let me stop. Did I answer your question? You did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I suppose what I was trying to um, yeah. kind of probe there was the fact that he was obviously probing attributes rather than looking at your experience, for example. He was, he was really digging deep to just see what your actual makeup is. And emotional intelligence is obviously one of, the, yeah. one of those attributes that he's really kind of assessing in that moment. 
if you want, you can ask me that again, Simon, and I'll, so that's good to know because I can answer it in a different way. Just okay. go, just go for it. Answer it again. Just go. Okay. So, okay. I think it, now that I have some uh, experience working with John and, and, and for John, you know, years later, um, the questions that are being asked in an interview, you know, in this I- example by John, they're trying to pull out certain attributes that um, that make great salespeople and, and make great teammates. Some of those attributes, and those attributes consist of, do you have, you know, emotional IQ? Um, can you think on your feet? Uh, are your answers thoughtful? Um, can you pull out of somebody in an interview what their character really is, what they were made of? What Can you pull out of somebody in an interview um, and their intelligence factor. Uh, and I think that through that line of questioning and John obviously at that time was an expert and you know, still is an expert at it, um, can find out pretty quickly if, if, if this is the right person to hire for that company and at the right time for that company too, which is important. So did you go in as an individual contributor? Did you did you leave Vericenter as an IC and go into Blade Logic as an IC? I did. I did. Yep. So I uh, I joined um, Blade Logic as an individual contributor. I did that for a short period of time and then I think within, you know, several months uh, I was promoted to to a first line manager. Sure. Who was who was your mentor at Blade Logic? Well, I think there, there's two um, there's two individuals that that really s- stick out to me. Uh, John, obviously, right? So I, I worked, you know, right down the, the hall from John, uh, which is a good thing and sometimes not a good thing, depending. <laughs> so, um, so you know, j- j- I would say for sure John. And then when I uh, when I took my first leadership role, I worked for Carlos Delatore, right? And uh, Carlos was awesome, right? I remember thinking that uh, I, I, was, I was driving home one day and it was after probably three or four months in the management role. And I remember thinking to myself vividly, I've never learned so much from somebody than I have from, from Carlos because Carlos and I used to talk you know, multiple times a day and he really helped me out a lot. So it was really John and, and Carlos. Okay, interesting. So that transition, you know, going from Vericenter into Blade Logic, was it a completely different environment? Did you, you know, did you gain a lot from the experience that you had or did you find yourself just, hold on a minute, I'm, I'm in a big place here. You know, there's some amazing people around me. Where do we go with this? <laughs> yeah, so Ollie, I think it was, it was definitely the hold on a minute. This is, this is not like my other, you know, uh, uh, jobs. And, and it was because of what you just said, when you looked around the company at the talent in the company, and not just in sales either, there's, it was all over the company. Uh, Dave, the CEO just did an incredible job with John attracting the top talent they could find across the company. Um, and it was definitely a completely different environment than, than I'd ever worked in before. And, and, and can you tell us a little bit why and what, what the difference was? Was it the metrics? Was it just the way in which you approached the cell? You know, what, what was it specifically? I think that um, 
everybody pushed each other every day to be the best that they could be. And, 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 and so let me give you an example. When, when you have a company where, you know, within uh, the United States, there's people like Dan Fougier, who's now the CRO at Datadog. Um, there's Carlos, who's been a, a very successful CRO at, at a number of different companies now at Trip Actions. Um, there's Scott Davis, who had, you know, a, a great career. There's Adam Aaron's over, you know, from who had a great run at, at Okta. Unbelievable, actually. Um, when you look around at that talent, you better show up every day and, 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 and play, right? And, and I think that was the difference. There wasn't, there wasn't really, there wasn't a, an hour really during the working week that you could take your foot off the gas. Um, that was the biggest difference. Uh, and everybody was pulling in the same direction to try to make each other better. And, you know, frankly, when, when you have, you know, John McMahon as the, as the leader, everybody really looked at him as the guy that, that, that they aspired to be too. Right. And that wasn't just in the United States. When you, when you look at across the company at Jeremy Duggan, who's, you know, an, an unbelievable leader over in the UK, Steve McCluskey over in the UK, Cedric Pesh, Luca Lazarone. So the company was just full of just amazing. Uh, um, uh, it was an amazing team. Yeah. And, and at this stage, was it the first time you were introduced to Medic? It was. It was. It's always something, Ollie. So that wasn't necessarily foreign to me. Right. It was just something that was put into letters, right? It's something, you know, I, I, um, I approach sales the same way. I just never had a formal process around it up until that point in my career. Okay. Okay. Um, and so from there, so you, you joined as an IC. Um, you were there for a year and a half before the acquisition. Is that correct? I was there for close to two years. Yep. Before, um, before so we, were, we ended up going public and then um, we were acquired by BMC. Uh, and in those, in those two years, um, I started off as an IC, uh, was an area director in the Boston area, which is a, a frontline manager, and then moved to Chicago to uh, be a second line manager for, for the Midwest region. And then when I was in Chicago, uh, we were we were acquired by BMC. So that's that's a fairly quick transition to go from first all the way to second line management in, in under two years. What was it they were seeing in you that enabled you to keep breaking that glass ceiling? Um. Well, I you know you should ask John. I I've never really <laughs> asked him that question so much. He's just he'd call me up and say, "Hey, Byron, I got another." another opportunity for you. Do you want it? And I just said, yes, every time. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, I, um, I think that I, I started to become what I would call a student of the game, right? I knew that I did not have uh, all the answers, not even close. I still don't even have close to all the answers to this, but um, it was more of, I was the sponge around <laughs> The, the four things that I, I started to, to write down as my four pillars, right? And, and I was a sponge around these four key areas. And I think that because I was a sponge around these four key areas, it allowed me to be 
to be successful. Uh, and these four er areas were around recruiting and retainment, training and enablement, pipeline and territory management, and then accurate forecasting, right? And in 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 that order too. I and uh, you know I I really to this day, if you ask my team today, these are the only four things that we consistently focus on, and now do it with a purpose, right? Every one of those four pillars has to be done with a lot of purpose behind it. Uh, and those were at the time of Blade Logic, the four things that I just relentlessly focused on every single day. Uh, and the results were I, you know, I hit my numbers uh, every, every quarter. And that gave me more opportunity. You talk a lot about purpose. Yeah, you talk a lot about purpose. So what is purpose? I think purpose is for me, Simon, uh, understanding what the desired outcome could be and approaching every conversation, every meeting, every interaction with intention, good intention to meet that desired outcome. And that desired outcome could be uh, a really big topic or it could be something really simple. But with, I just, I've, over the, over the course of my career, I've approached things without purpose sometimes too. And when you approach things without purpose, people can see that. And it's hard to lead when that happens. But when you approach something with purpose, the team, if, if you hire the right team, they can see that too. And it's just a lot easier to get where you want to go when you have purpose behind, behind your, your intentions. And having made that transition now to second line manager, how important is it to give your team purpose as well? Oh, it's, it's one of the most important things I think a second line manager can do. Um, I, I, you know, I think when you start to move up from first line managers, typically you're drinking from a fire hose. In most cases, a first line manager, especially like as an example, blade logic, they were traditionally early on in, in their career, and it was kind of learning on the job. When you move up into a second line manager role, um, the role is different, right? You have to have more uh, thought behind, you know, what what you want the strategy of your team to be. You have to have more thought behind um, each individual on your team. You have to have more thought behind the development of each individual on your team. So the role changes. And with that change, in my opinion, I think being able to um, have a purpose and, and articulate that purpose and enable your team to have a purpose too is probably one of, if not the most important thing, uh, a second line leader or any leader for that, for that matter can, can, can do in business. And what do you think the outcome is of kind of instilling that purpose is on the team? <clears throat> I think with, with, um, with that type of communication, uh, people understand where they're going. And when you understand where you're going, it gets easy to easier, not easy, but easier to lead an organization to what the desired outcome should be uh, because there's more transparency around it. And people don't, you know, the organization isn't, doesn't feel like they have to guess all the time. It's just very open, very transparent. 
And in that type of environment and in that type of organization, um, it's, it's a lot easier to, to lead. The purpose itself, does it have a short, medium and long-term purpose? Does it evolve as time goes by? Yeah. I mean, oh yeah, it, it does. I, I think that, you know, when, when I break down across those four pillars, for example, um, where the biggest impact can be and where the biggest kind of uh, purpose is in a quarter, as an example, that ebbs and flows throughout the quarter. Traditionally at the beginning of the quarter, you want to get your recruiting done um, and you want your team to understand, Hey, here's the purpose on why we're, focusing on recruiting more now than we are at the end of the quarter. Cause at the end of the quarter, it's typically about closing business and qualifying deals for the next quarter. Um, so I think that it, that it does it in that, and that can ebb and flow within a quarter that can ebb and flow within a week, Ollie. Mm-hmm. And I think the long-term purpose is what's the goal over the arc of 12 months or 24 months. I think looking out beyond 24 months, at least in my experience, it gets hard to do, especially in technology, because things move so fast. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, it'd be interesting as we go through your journey, I don't know if it's the right time to ask the question, but I suppose your purpose and identifying different purposes as you go through lines, those higher lines of management to president, it'd be interesting to know how those purposes have evolved into where you are today. But maybe come back to asking that question when we get on to, to Laceworks. You're getting... Um, Sure, man. Sure. <laughs> um, so, Blade Logic BMC acquisition comes along. Tell us about that. Tell us about the day that you get it. Oh, no. Well, pre, you obviously go for an IPO first. Um, and then shortly after, acquisition by BMC. Go through an IPO, acquisition by BMC. Uh, I, so, at the time, I was still pretty naive about what that meant. You know, I just cared about Ollie at the time. I'm going to recruit, train, pipeline, generate, and hit the forecast, right? And our whole team's going to do that. And that's kind of what we do. <clears throat> and um, what I didn't realize is that a larger company had just acquired us and that uh, a larger company has different processes and different people and different approaches to things. And uh, which was great, by the way, that was just an unbelievable learning experience for me. And so we were acquired. Um, I think that was another really big uh, point in my life and in my career. Uh, After the acquisition, well, the reason why BMC acquired us is because they wanted not only our product, but also the leadership team that we had, starting with Dave and John, our, you know, our CEO and, and John running sales. Those, you know, and, and they wanted to bring the Blade Logic team into the company to help them kind of navigate the change that was happening within technology and hopefully bring them up to the next level as well. So they really, BMC did a great job, I would say, really embracing the way that we went to market and the way that we sold, right? Because at the at the time when we were a standalone company, we were, we were winning a lot, right? And we were winning a lot because of our relentless focus on those four things. And our relentless focus on making sure that we had the best talent in the company focused on those four things. Um, so after the acquisition happened, 
Um, the executive team at Blade Logic um, effectively was given uh, the enterprise uh, solution kind of software team for BMC. I forget the the title of it now. Unfortunately, it doesn't come off the top of my head. But um, uh, John ran sales for that organization, um, and I got a call about a month and a half after the acquisition. I was living in Chicago with my family, and John said hey, wouldn't it be great if you moved over to Germany? We got a great opportunity for you. You can, you know, you can get, you know, take, take more responsibility. You can live overseas. Um, and you get to work for a guy that, that's, that's, that's awesome, Luca Lazarus. And I, and I kind of knew Luca through a lot of QBRs that we had at the company. And uh, Luca was an incredibly impressive leader. And there were two other guys over there that I had a ton of respect for, Jeremy Duggan and Cedric Pesh. Jeremy ran the UK, Cedric ran Southern Europe. Um, and they, you know, they asked me to move over there to run Central Europe, which I did. And what was interesting was that was the first time in my career I really had to learn how to navigate through change management, which is another, um, I think, big topic that a lot of people don't don't spend a lot of time on that's super hard. Right. And I think since from, from BMC all the way up through now, it's something that, you know, I've, I've kind of had at the, at, at the forefront of, of things that I had to get, have to get done in, in, in my jobs. And I really learned that at BMC though, because what, what BMC wanted to do was take the blade logic approach and implement it first over in Europe right, with the leadership of Luca, and then myself, Jeremy, and Cedric. So I moved over to Germany, uh, moved my family over to Munich, spent uh, some time over there. It's the biggest job I ever had at the time of my career. I was still a, a, a really you know, young guy at the time. And um, it was an experience I, I look on right now with, with you know, a lot of, uh, just a lot of positive outcomes that came from that experience so what does change management mean what what, what when when you talk about this what and, and you say it's something that is important and and is often overlooked what what is it about change management I, so change management is the ability for a company and a leadership team to change the way things are being done within an organization for the better of the organization now that's really hard though, Ollie, because that might be the high level view and the, the, the right people in the company might see that view, but it's super hard to get all the individuals in the company, which are the most important people in the company for the most part, to, to embrace that as well, right? And I think that people who can effectively navigate through change management, um, there's not that many of them in the, in the, actually, let's cut that. Let me think through. You asked me a big question there, brother. I'm trying to think through. Yeah, the best sorry. <laughs> we, we, we've, we've got a piece, but at the same time, it's mostly, uh... I think it'd be good for you to make the link actually to the fact that it's not just about changing processes. You have to change mindset. I think yeah. that'd probably be a good way. I would have asked that as a, as a follow-up question, but since we're going to re-record it, I think you can't change an organization just by changing processes. I think that's right. the, <laughs> I don't know whether you agree with that. 
Uh, no, I do. Yeah, so, yeah. so um, the question was, what is change management? It right? is. So, change. So, change management is the ability to change the way things are done within a within an organization. But I think more importantly, it's the ability to change the mindset of the people in the company, right? Because that's the direction that the leadership of the company, and frankly, in a lot of cases, the market is dictated, the company has to change towards. And um, that was a, a really big task that had that was underway at, at BMC. And I was fortunate enough to be to be one of the first ones to to implement that within with successfully implement that, by the way, within the uh, European market for BMC. With such a big organization, there must have been so much resistance. How do you overcome that resistance? That's hard. Um, there was, and that's really hard. And, you know, Simon, it, there's, there's, um, that takes a lot of time communicating effectively, right? And I, I learned a lot, uh, especially living in Germany, not, speak, not speaking my native tongue, right? And it forced me to over-communicate, uh, which was the right thing to do. Um, and so that, you know, that I think by over-communicating and at the time, I didn't think so much about purpose, right? I was, you know, it was early on in my career and it was just like, I got to get the job done. Here's the mission. I got to go this, I got to go be successful in the mission. But when I reflect back on, that point in my career, I spent a lot of time communicating uh, with many people in the organization on why this was the right thing to do. And I, I had a, a great leader at the time in Luca Lazarone, who helped me out a lot in communicating that too. So it wasn't just me on my own. It was, you know, and I, and I think this is integral to any, any change management that happens in any organization. There has to be alignment with a number of people and there has to be a partnership at the leadership level uh, around how that change management is going to be approached through the good and difficult times. And there's more difficult times typically, you know, early on. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have that with Luca and then also, you know, with, with, with my peers and Jeremy and, and Cedric as well. So we were all, you know, attached to the hip on what the, yeah. what the, uh, what the goal was. And, and, and the team saw that over in, in me too. And through the change management process, uh, we did a great job of celebrating the small wins that turned into big wins. Right. So I think that's another big part of change management, which is if you have that alignment uh, with the leadership team, uh, part of that, part of that alignment is how do you celebrate the small wins so over time, you can turn them into big ones. So like, I remember thinking, you know, even when somebody got uh, an economic buyer meeting, we'd celebrate that, we'd send out an email, right? Hey, Joe got an economic buyer meeting. Sally got an economic buyer meeting. And that, when people started to see that happening, they'd say, well, I'm, I'm going to do that too. It seems like it works. And then we'd take those small ones into big ones, which is, hey, that economic buyer meeting resulted in, you know, a million dollar deal or. It doesn't even have to be a million dollar deal sometimes, right? A, a hundred thousand dollar deal. Um, 
so those were things, you know, that that's where those celebrating the win started to come in. And I think that that's another uh, big part of effective change management as well. Yeah, it's interesting because you are talking about initially you'll be stuck somewhere between show and tell, right? Somewhere between telling you what to do or show you the evidence of the success. But at the beginning, you're obviously having to earn that, earn that right, right? So. Oh, yeah. So an American flies into Germany, not speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that was a difficult situation, but I was very fortunate, though, to have, for the most part, just an awesome team over there, too. I I met a bunch of great people, and um, I had, outside of just, you know, a great partnership with Luca and Cedric and Jeremy, you know, there was, uh, there were a couple individuals over there in particular um, this guy, Rizan Flenner, who really, you know, I hired Rizan uh, in, in the Swiss market. Rizan did a great job partnering with me on really uh, getting the team to buy into the change management we were going through around implementing MedPick, um, implementing a new sales process, value selling versus vending. Uh, we brought in, uh, you know, force management and talked about value drivers. So, you know, I had the right leadership team and guys like Rizon Flenner and this, you know, another individual, Ollie Krebs and Christian Winklebauer. I had a, just a great team with, with a number of individuals over there where it, it wasn't forced because of the leadership team that was, you know, helping me out that, that reported directly into me. Florian, was it Florian was in, was in your team? Florian was on my team at Fuse. Yes. Okay. Yeah, he's now at Zscaler. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, go on. Sorry, Simon. I was just going to say. So, I mean, historically, Andy, you've you've obviously built a bit of a reputation for, you know, tear down and rebuild, right? Um, yes. Was this the turning point? Was this when you kind of caught the bug and you thought, you know what, I can really, really go and 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 have big impact? I think so, Simon. I think so. Um, it, it, it was, it's, for me, it was, uh, so I had international experience. I understand how things operate outside of the United States, which is important uh, for me personally um, and professionally. Um, and I, I saw what success looked like around change management. And so, yeah, I would, to answer your question, I think this, that did have a big impact to me. Yes. So you've, you've done that job in, in, in Germany. You've then come back to the U.S. in 2009, taken on a role of vice president of sales for U.S. and Canada um, from 2009 to 2011, right? Yep. So I spent a couple years um, back in, moved back to Boston, moved back home, and I spent a couple years uh, managing uh, part of the U.S. for BMC and then also Canada. It was you know, a great couple years. I knew, though kind of at the time, Ollie, that, you know, it'd been roughly five years I'd been between Blade Logic and BMC. And I knew uh, I wanted to go and I, I, I wanted to go work for a small company again. Um, so I, I started roughly around 2010, starting to figure out what else was out there 
uh, that would allow me to get back into a more entrepreneurial environment. Okay, which was the calling of the Vexa, right? 2011? Yep, yep. So um, I, at, at Blade Logic, I was incredibly fortunate to, uh, to meet a bunch of great people. One of them was Vic Vrishnavi. And Vic was like the best marketer I had ever seen. And uh, he, it was clear to me, at least, and a lot of other people, that uh, after uh, Blade Logic and BMC, Vic's next job was going to be a big job somewhere. And he took the role of CEO at Avexa. And uh, it was, you know, he spent some time with me and I spent a lot of time with him and in the board of directors understanding uh, what the strategy was at Avexa, what the value prop was. And I felt like that was the right time in my career as well to go try to take a shot at being a CRO. And I went over to Avexa to work, to work for Vic uh, and run, run the sales organization and build out the sales organization within Avexa. Um, so, yeah, so just, so at Avexa, we had, a uh, we had a great run there. Uh, we grew the company significantly. We had a, we had a, you know, a nice acquisition by EMC. Um, and I wanted to stay in the Boston area. This is another kind of big choice that I had to make, whether it was, do I want to move out to the Bay area or stay in the Boston area? I wanted to stay in the Boston area. And I ended up um, taking a role at the time. It was a company called Thinking Phones, and yeah. I I saw a big opportunity there. So Thinking Phones. Before I get into to to the opportunity, Thinking Phones. When I joined, it, it was not really a startup. It was about you know twenty million in recurring revenue. It had been in business for several years. It had you know. It, um, over, over a hundred customers. I forget the, the total amount off the top of my head, but I saw a great opportunity there to go work for a Boston company and, uh, and go disrupt a market that was old, right. Uh, uh um, in the unified communication market. So, uh, that's how I ended up taking, taking a role at, at thinking phones as the chief revenue officer. And then obviously, <laughs> August 2015, September 2015, you actually got promoted to president and COO. What was the difference between those roles? So as CRO, it was primarily, it was only sales, right? That was, that was my role. And um, as COO and president, it was uh, all things go to market and a portion of, of product uh, that, was, that was my responsibility. So it was, it was a broader responsibility okay and then cyber reason january 2017 you then decided to make your way into the world of cyber security was that was that a choice how did cyber reason come about was it john mcmahon was it you know what what, what is it that brought you there yeah so um so avexa was a security company and it uh it was in identity and access management. And within um, my time at EMC, uh, within the RSA division of EMC, there was uh, just quite a bit of conversations about cybersecurity and, you know, um, endpoint protection. And so I paid attention to that market for a while. And um, I had heard of a company through um, 
John, and, and then also through uh, a gentleman by the name of Izar Armani, who's a Charles River Ventures, uh, that he put money into called Cyberies. And so um, I paid attention to the market. I paid attention to Cyberies because it was a Boston-based company, and it was a company that was uh, up and coming. And that's how I ended up uh, making the connection uh, to the CEO, uh, Lear Div, within, within Cyberreason and taking that job. So um, Cyber Reason, January 2017, you joined a CRO. Tell us a little bit about your mission there. Yeah, so some of my mission was to uh, scale out uh, a worldwide sales organization uh, with common messaging and uh, a common approach to the market and really go and penetrate the largest companies in the world. So when I joined uh, Cyber Reason, the company was doing... I don't know, uh, a little uh, south of 20 million in ARR. When I left Cyber Reason, the company was doing uh, north of 80 million in ARR. Uh, We had a global presence. Um, We had become known as one of the industry leaders in endpoint protection. And uh, it was a great run. Um, You know, also the company, you know, achieved unicorn status uh, and is funded by some of the the best venture capital companies in the world. So having made that transition across from uh, Cyber Reason, you, you you made the leap into the world of uh, venture capital in CRV, which was actually one of the investors in Cyber Reason. Just tell us a little bit about why they brought you in and, and, and what you were doing, um, what you were doing. Yeah, there. so look, Simon, I was at a point in my career where um, I was, I wanted to make a decision on what the second half of my career looked like. And um, I, I had known the partner uh, that invested in, in Cyber Reason. He was an investor at Avexa, just a great guy. Uh, he's a partner at CRV. He asked me to, to, to join their firm um, to help out uh, with some of their invest, investments that they've made. And then also, you know, figure out kind of what my, what my next role was going to be. And um, I had a, just a, a, a great opportunity to meet a bunch of wonderful entrepreneurs there. And one of the things that I did uh, identify was there was a big movement happening, not just to the cloud, which is the obvious uh, piece, but there was another big movement happening around container security and, and applications being developed in Kubernetes and Docker and um and companies were really struggling to figure out how do we secure the development of these applications in what we would consider an ephemeral environment, really where people have access to these containers and can spin up uh, applications. And then how, how are companies gonna secure not just that, but secure the infrastructure that those applications are being deployed on or those containers are being deployed on, whether it was AWS, Google, Azure, or even in some cases, uh, uh, in an in, in internal cloud environment. So, um, I, I I really recognize that there is you know a, a, a conversion happening between uh, the containerization of applications and cloud infrastructure. Uh, and I got I, I learned more about that within my experience at CRV, which led me to Lacework. Right, I. I went uh, and I and I 
you know, learned more about the opportunity at Lacework. And it was exactly what I wanted uh, at that point in my career, which is a huge market that I understood, which is securing infrastructure, albeit cloud infrastructure, which I think is the, the, the high growth uh, machine behind, behind everything in the future. Um, it's securing the container uh, environment itself, which is something that I had recognized uh, was presenting a, a pretty big risk to a lot of companies. And so there was a big market. The product that we have at Lacework was highly differentiated in the way we solved that problem through a platform approach and an automated, uh, an automated product. And then the third thing for me was I wanted to get into a company early where I, where I could apply all the knowledge that I've obtained so far in my career to build something versus going and, you know, deal with a lot of change management. I wanted to build and grow a company and Lacework was at the perfect stage. And then the last piece was the investors, right? So I really believe in and completely buy into the Sutter Hill investment strategy. And, um, you know, and, and John, John's part of the board here as well. So, you know, he's another validating piece of, of the way we're approaching go to market within Lacework. So all those lined up and, and uh, I ended up, I ended up here. So I think you're absolutely right in terms of, you know, how you've described Lacework. It's, it's definitely the eye of the storm in terms of, you know, good cybersecurity vendors enable organizations to move faster. They shouldn't slow them down, right? And I think that you're, you're, it's such an integral part of, of, of you know, the, of, of how applications are actually developed and enable, enabling them to be securely developed a lot kind of quicker. So I think it's such an amazing market that you're in. You've got the right technology. You've got the right board. You've got the right CRO. Tell us about the, the playbook. So the playbook that we're implementing is really focused on those four pillars, Simon, that, um, that, that I described earlier. And it all starts, uh, in my opinion, with attracting the right talent into the company. And really, in the interview process, making sure that that talent that you're interviewing has the right attributes and characteristics um, that, you're, that you're looking for, which is high integrity, uh, lots of energy, um, high EQ, uh, smart, uh, and you know, has, it can be part of a team, right? And that's something that we pay a lot of attention to here with that word I'll use again, purpose, which is you can, you can bring in Michael Jordan, but if Michael Jordan doesn't fit within that team, it's not going to work. So we, we, we spend a lot of time making sure that the people we hire, they're the right fit for the stage of the territory, for the stage of the region, and for the stage of the team that we're building out. Not just, you know, and, and that's more of a specific approach we're taking than a holistic approach that we're taking, you know, across the company. So um that's kind of like pillar number one number two is we want to make sure that we keep the best people right and we've done a great job at at retaining uh the best talent in our company we've got an awesome team and uh we spend a lot of time making sure that um we stay connected to that team uh and that the team feels like they're a, a contributing uh factor towards our success and that's really you know a focus around retainment 
uh, in terms of training and enablement. So we are now going into, you know, really, I'd say high growth mode. We're going to add um, hundreds of people into the go-to-market organization within the next 12 months. And underpinning all of that is a training and enablement program that we've spent a lot of time working on and we're starting to, to implement uh, within our organization. And it's not just training enablement, it's training enablement and then certifying as well, which is the other core piece of that. The third pillar that we're focused on on a daily basis is pipeline management and territory management. So, and what I mean by that is when we, uh, when we look at our pipeline, we've identified what I would, what I'll describe as our ideal customer profile. So we've identified the companies that have the highest propensity to buy from us. And that's where we're focusing our sales organization on. And that's allowing our sales organization to drive the following numbers consistently. 36 top of the funnel discovery meetings per quarter, 24 at a minimum 24 uh, first face-to-face -face meetings per quarter, six business value workshops a quarter, and then four proof of concepts a quarter. That's been very consistent from the time somebody starts to the time, you know, they're six months plus on the job. Those numbers are consistent. And then that's enabling us to deliver on a predictable forecast across MedPick that is, you know, giving us that 300% growth year on year, which we'll absolutely experience this year as well. Incredible, incredible success. And so as a president, what is the difference from a, you know, a CRO to a president and what additional functions and I suppose impact have you got to create in the business? So um, in my role, I'm responsible for everything that touches a customer from um, top of the funnel marketing to branding to PR to AR. So it's all of marketing um, and it's also all of sales as it relates to business development, channel development, SEs or SAs, some companies call it, um, sales engineering, the SDR team, so the, the inside sales team. And then the outside sales team is my responsibility. And then customer success, making sure that we have happy customers that want to stay with us for a long time. So that's the difference. In, and I have to make sure that all those things align to one strategy and one goal. And also make sure all those things align to product and engineering. And then also the financials of the company and what our goals are financially. So... Um, it's, it's, it's more than just making sure we hit the number every quarter. It's making sure we hit the number, but all the other pieces are aligned to the company hitting the number as well. Sure. I want to, I want to introduce a kind of a taboo word, which is KPIs. Well, it's an yeah. acronym, a taboo acronym, shall I say, KPIs. You've reeled out quite a few numbers there, right? They're very, very specific what are your thoughts on KPIs? I think they're critical to, to the success of a company, right? I think that um, when 
bought into, they can be implemented the right way. So a KPI can either be used as a compliance tool or can be used as, as a guide to get somebody where they want to go in their job and in their career and financially, frankly, as well. And um, I think KPIs, when implemented and bought into, are phenomenal. You know, we're seeing it right here at, at, at Lacework. Um, the company flourishes because everybody's bought into these key performance indicators. And the company is basically giving everybody that joins the organization a treasure map for what great looks like, right? And supporting everybody to get to that great. Um, when not bought into and when not uh, really communicated the right way, I think a KPI can be a negative thing and it can be become a compliance tool and nobody wants to work in a company where, you know, you, you feel like it's you're micromanaged or you have to be compliant to reporting on these numbers. And um, so I, I think, you know, that's my thoughts on KPIs, but when orchestrated and bought into the right way, Simon, uh, it's one of the most powerful three letters a company can have in its corner. How do you talk, as you say, we, you talk about purpose and you talk about purpose as being a big part of your playbook. Not looking at the purpose to each of your meetings. What, what's the purpose to Andy? What, what, what's Andy's purpose of life at the moment and where you see yourself going? <laughs> Have you ever have you ever evaluated that? Hey. hey, Ollie, sorry, you broke up with me here. Sorry, I was just asking what your purpose was. So you talk about the purpose to a meeting, you talk about the purpose to, to what your mission is at Lace Works, but what's your personal purpose? Is there a is there a purpose that you've sat and thought about personally yourself and where you see yourself getting to? What the Yeah, absolutely, Ollie. I mean, you know, a lot of people I've heard this phrase, well, you know, it's just business, it's it's not personal. I, I personally don't agree with that, right? Because if you take your job as serious as a lot of the people I work with do it, it does become personal. For me, it's very personal, right? And um, I go to, to work every day with the purpose of having a positive impact on people's lives and careers. And um, I want to look back after lace work and say, I had a positive impact on the employees at the company. I had a positive impact on the outcomes of our customers and what they wanted. We had a positive impact on the market, hopefully being the market leader. Um, and I could have a positive impact in creating a legacy of the best cloud security company in the world. Right. And that's what we're trying to build here. So that's, that's my purpose. Interesting. And so you mentioned that you chose, you know, you, you made a decision on, on, on also on opportunities that you've taken on based upon the fact that you wanted to retain in Boston. Is that a personal thing? Is that because you've got your family to consider and, you know, you've moved them to Germany, you've moved them. Yeah. Is there, is there a reason for that? Yeah. So look, um, Pre-pandemic, I was on the road all the time. And I just, you know, when when I flew back to Boston, I didn't want to be on the road, you know, again to go to the company headquarters, right? I, I don't think it was fair to to the people that I surround myself with so um, and my family. So 
yeah, that was uh, uh, one. That was the big reason why I decided to 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 stay here and and work for local companies, so I could you know go go to the office locally and get in my car and drive there versus jump on a plane and and have to go somewhere else to visit headquarters yeah. and visit all the the executives. We we hear about it, and again, it's 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 a really kind of interesting question because in everybody that we've spoken to, in some way, you know, I think what's often overlooked with individuals at your level doing the jobs that you do is the sacrifices that you make on a personal level, you know, with your family, um, and you know, as I said, I think you know, being a father myself, I think it's uh, it's 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 got to be tough decisions to make on on doing those sorts of things and. As I said, you know, the, um, the conversations that we're hearing even now, you know, individuals moving their kids out of universities and schools and colleges to take on new opportunities. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, look, Ollie, for sure, that's the same thing. I, you know, two, two boys and, um, you know, I want to want to be around as much as I can, um, you know, as long as as long as they, you know, are still in the house. So, yeah. <laughs> Great. So um, the final question that we are. Ask um, Andy on the show is. Oh, just before um, we ask the final question, sorry, mate, I'd be interested just to ask one more question, which is, sure. and I'll, I'll ask the question now. So we we'll, we'll start from now. So um, we've just released a, a, a series which which looks at pre-sales, and we've interviewed a number of your colleagues at Blade Logic, at BMC. Yeah. How integral is is pre-sales in your playbook? Oh, it's fifty percent of us winning. Right. Absolutely, because of the way. When you approach sales as a value sale um, and you use MedPick as your, as your framework, the, I would say the, the big event is the proof of concept. And, and leading up to the proof of concept, all the differentiation you can show uh, in building that proof of concept criteria and in building champions as well. And um, in a technical sale, in that framework, the SE is 50% of the sale. I say it to my team all the time at Lacework. And, and where did you where did that become apparent for you? Was that at Blade Logic? Yes. Yeah. That was at Blade Logic. Absolutely. It was, the proof of concept was like the Super Bowl at Blade Logic. And the SEs, they were, you know, we had the best SEs in the industry and they were responsible for for they were responsible for our growth there, a, a large part of it. Yeah, I think, you know, from what we've heard, this is often so overlooked, you know, they're seen as, um, and, and still in lots of software companies, um, that they're just seen as, as a tool rather than as an asset. And, you know, from what we've learned through that process of how, you know, the, let's call it the John McMahon legacy companies, are you adopting and, and, and building pre-sales as a function um is completely different and you can see the success these businesses are having based upon the fact that you know they're seen as more than just a tool yeah so i i work with the great se leader over at lacework and damon miller and so damon's you know he's he's one he's a great example of being an incredible se and now an incredible se leader and if if he's not successful our company's not successful for sure. And, it, it, and, there's, and there's a form, and we've heard it from, again, the number of the guests um, 
you know, Sahir probably being one of the yeah. who focused on it quite a lot is how they're then able to then change the, I suppose, the, the messaging um, around the product from a technical level to help actually influence that go-to-market strategy and rebuild a kind of messaging which is more influential. And that comes into having more of a technical mindset looking at, I suppose, a, a go-to-market strategy and a, a commercial understanding. Yes. So the, the SE role um, is not only instrumental in winning opportunities and, and acquiring customers, it's, it's as influential on product and engineering and messaging and where, where, the, where the direction of the product's going. And it's something that, that I've seen the best SEs in the world have huge influence on within a company too. Fantastic. Now, brilliant. Um, yeah, we've had Damon on the show and he's a great guest. So, um, yeah, viewers, yeah, if, if, if you haven't heard it, listen to it. <laughs> well. So, uh, Andy, the final question uh, that we ask on the show is, does the, does, the hunt, does, the, does the hunter make the unicorn? Yeah, 100%, uh, in my opinion. I think that um, you can have a great product in a huge market, but without an incredible sales force and an incredible go-to-market team, that company is never going to reach its potential. So the hunter does make the unicorn. <laughs> great, great, great. So um, this is the point where we summarize on what we've heard today. So I suppose I, I want to go right to the beginning of your, of your kind of career because the big theme of this, this session today has been around purpose, okay? And purpose has been so fundamental to help you navigate your career in the direction that it's gone. And, and, and when you think about purpose, purpose is what took you to baseball initially. And it's also what probably took you away from baseball. And I think that your ability to really break it down and not just say, okay, why am I doing this? But actually, how do I translate this purpose into my everyday activity into my diary into what i want to get from every interaction from every meeting means that you're squeezing all of the potential that you possibly can to work towards the very best outcomes and i think that this is a building block which has really enabled you to have the career trajectory which has taken you from pro ball pro baseball to president in in such a, a remarkable time and i think you know it's been a, a great great session we've we've heard, we've learned so much about you know yourself and your playbook and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for, for coming on the show thank you for having me simon and ollie i appreciate it oh, no, it's been absolutely inspirational and our viewers in for a right treat with this andy thanks so much for your time thank you so to our viewers and to our listeners today, we hope you've enjoyed today's, uh, today's show. If you have enjoyed, please remember to subscribe. There's lots and lots of content available on our website. So please do check out so much soap.com forward slash blog. And we look forward to welcoming you for another session soon. Thank you very much. Yeah.